podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Place to be, nah, dude, come over here, this where it's at. Yo, 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 place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target but not fly the coop. Nah, place to be is on my side, dude, because you don't want to be the target when I fly the coop. Buenos dias. Man, Man, it, it, we call it the, uh, the place to be. The place to be, yeah. Then I shall be. It is contagious. It is the place to be, and we are live each and every Monday. To do worse than Josh Richard. Place to Be Nation proudly presents a powerful pair of pro wrestling pundits. It's JT Rosero and Scott Criscolo. And this is the Place to Be Podcast. Welcome to Atlanta, Jack and Hammers and Bows. Back to the Mac and Jack and the clothes. Adolescents packing a bow. A knock on the door. Who is it? I would happen to know the one with the flow. Who did it? It was me, I suppose. JD in the rolls and looters in the cut supreme. Skating down old Nat, got tucked and lean. I split your spleen. As a matter of fact, I split your team. No blood on the sneaks. Gotta keep it so my kicks is clean. I get the cream. Cops see me flick my beans. I'm allergic to doc prescribed and a histamine. Oink, oink, pig, pig. Do away with the pork. Only silver. I need a steak knife and a fork. Did you forget your fucking manners? I'm Bruce with banners. Ludacris, Johnny Rockets when I shoot the cannon. Place to be Nation. Welcome back to the great episode of the one and only Place to be Podcast. I am your co-host, Justin Rosero, coming with you on this Monday from the PTBN studios. And joining me, as always, is my PIC, Mr. Scott Criscolo. Scott, how are you on this crisp October day? Good evening, JR. PTB Wrestling Network, friends and family, welcome to episode 636 of the longest running episodic on the fucking gold. Damn it. Uh, crisp, uh, considering it peaked at like 77 today. <laughs> yeah, it's not 78, it should be 58. I don't mind the the warm days and the cool nights, I guess. That's, uh-uh. uh, that's, a, that's an okay trade <laughs> Should be the name of our next pod <laughs> after we hit episode 5,000. Warm yes. um, so it's funny, Jr. As I ask, of course, how you're doing as always on this beautiful fall. We always get in the we get in some fun and games as we get into the fall. We look forward to the DAT, mm-hmm. little Friars hoops. Um, yeah, fun and games. Now, um, my friend sent an interesting meme to me today or a picture. Uh, today is the 45th anniversary of the Bucky fucking Dent home run, and he goes 45 years later, and both those teams with five times the payroll are not playing. <laughs> it's very it's, it's depressing. Um, a lot of big market teams are not playing. Yeah, but I looked at like. the AL playoffs and I was like, I don't like any of these fucking teams, honestly. Um, so I, I'm going to just, I'll, I'll go with Rocco. Rocco and the Twins, I guess. They never get to go anywhere. So I'll, maybe this will be the year they piece it together. But beyond yeah. that, uh, nothing really. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite. I can't stand any team in the National League. Sorry, Chad. I think I, I know you're going to hate this. I, I kind of like the Orioles. I don't know. Yeah, I just don't want Peter Winston to be happy. <laughs> well, he'll find a way to be miserable while he's happy. So <laughs> not, many people could, not many people could be that way. So, uh, JR, always a pleasure. Good to be with you as always. Uh, we got a fun little, uh, we got a fun member of our of our trinity this evening. Let's bring him in. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to mix things up, Scott, because this uh-huh. is your boy, your buddy. I'm going to let you go ahead and introduce him. He's a brand new voice to the Place to Be podcast, a very longtime fan and listener. It's exciting to have him on here as we enter 2010. Uh, why don't you go ahead and bring him in? Yes, uh, he shares my name, and he's equally as talented, Mr. Scott Grimes. Scott, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. It's it. Yeah, I've, I've been a fan for a long time, so it's an honor to to finally make it to the flagship. I'm really excited to uh, to wrap with the two of you about this uh, this show, which was pretty nostalgic on my watch back. So I'm uh, I'm interested, and in, you know, just for the record, um, I think I, I like a Braves and Jays World Series this year. I think we we might be getting a rematch, like a <laughs> you know a 30 years later sort of uh, sort of rematch there. So I don't know. Is Dave Winfield going to get the big hit in the tenth inning? I don't know. <laughs> Is, uh, no, Dave, Dave Winfield could come back and easily go four <laughs> for five. <laughs> uh, I did jump on the on the Jays bandwagon in the early '90s when the Mets were unwatchably terrible. I because I, Mookie Wilson, who was my favorite Met, got traded to the Blue Jays, so I kind of jumped on the Jays bandwagon. Fuck the I like Blue Jays. Uh, I'll, I'll take the Braves. I, I'll go. Let's go. How about we go a year earlier, Grimesy? We go '91. Uh, you want Twins, Braves, Phillies? Twins. Oh, you Braves. want Twins Braves? Twins Braves. You want um, Jays Phillies that you're after. You want Twins Braves. Oh. All right, that's we can do that. That's because because twi- Jays Phillies reminds me of Kurt Schilling, and he's like the lowest form of life. So I really want to. <laughs> remind I feel like he like lost the the remaining pink hat diehard defenders, Red Sox Nation defenders. He pissed them off. Now I don't think he's got anyone left. I think he's done. Yeah, he can't come back now, from that. Yeah. Now that everybody hates him, can we all admit that the that the bloody sock was a fucking hoax? That the whole thing's that, stupid. He's such a phony. Gino whatever his name was fucking threw ketchup in his sock or whatever the fuck it was. It's all, it's all bullshit. Oh all my right. God, my sheath is loose. Yeah. More than your sheath is fucking loose. Um, well, anyway, here we go. Uh, so we are into 2010. We started here on our last episode by uh, a rare uh, TV episode. Scott, we covered the raw versus impact war from January yes. 4th. Uh, but this is our first pay-per-view of 2010. It is the mm-hmm. Royal rumble. And we'll get into that in a minute. But we're going to head back to 1996, as we usually do. And uh, Mr. Criscolo, tell us what was going on in the world of professional. Well, let us go back to this date, uh, 1996, and uh, nothing going on, JR. No uh, house show for the WWF. No house show for WCW. There's not even a house show for uh, ECW on... uh, on this date, January 31st, uh, 2000, uh, 1996. So of course we are a couple weeks past the 96 rumble. I'm sure we'll mention that as we head into in your house six in February and some other interesting things. Cause 1996, as we talked about JR in the last set of herbs, uh, the transition guys started rosters and such in 1996. So why don't we pass it over back to the PIC and fire up the, Herb. All right, Mr. Grimes, you're going to get three batches of herb here tonight. We're going to kick off with January 11th, 1996. The WF has a Royal Rumble pay-per-view on January 21st. Tentative lineup is Bret Hart versus The Undertaker, Razor Moan versus Goldust, Jeff Jarrett versus Ahmed Johnson, Rumble match with Diesel, Owen Hart, British Bulldog, Dory Funk Jr., Savio Vega, King Mabel, Bam Bam Bigelow, Barry Horowitz, Yokozuna, Tatanka, and Vader. There's talk that Diesel will get bumped into the main event and turn it into a triangle match, making room for Shawn Michaels to enter the Rumble as a surprise. I don't know how those two things are related, but okay. Uh, Vader is reportedly only coming in to work the Rumble. He can make more money as a regular New Japan, so 0 for 2 out of uh, Mr. Herb here so far. 
WCW's Clash of Champions on January 23rd. Hogan and Savage versus Flair and Giant. Sting versus Pillman. Luger versus Eddie Guerrero. Sullivan versus Disco Inferno. Alex Wright versus Dean Malenko. Sherry Martell and Rob Parker will get married. Nasty Boys versus Public Enemy. The final match may not take place as WCW is still working on getting Public Enemy in without changing their team name. Which I thought they had already debuted on Nitro. Weren't they on like the January 1st? Well, I guess he's behind, but... The Observer mm. reports that Alundra Blaze's contract with the WWF expired on December 13th. It was not renewed since Jessica McMahon had decided to abandon promoting women's matches. It had originally been the plan to have a pay-per-view program with Blaze and various Japanese women, but the plan was ditched and Aja Kong was notified that she wasn't going to be used. Blaze, under her old name Medusa Maselli, jumped ship to WCW and did an interview on Nitro where she tossed the women's title in the trash can. Medusa is slated to wrestle Reggie Bennett sometime in January, and WCW has already apparently ar uh, arranged to have Dynamite Kansai work with her in the U.S. I don't think either of those things happen. No. Steve Austin has debuted at the recent WWF tapings as the ringmaster, the million-dollar champion of the corporation. The headhunters who works Mexico and IWA Japan will get a tryout. There's talk that with the both WF and WCW interested, ECW has already signed them to work a series of shows. Mm -hmm. Continuing talk that King Mabel is leaving the WF. WCW will run live weekly Nitros for several months. Apparently, with the recent ratings showing that Nitro is an edge to Raw, they don't want to let up. Originally, they were going to start taping shows, and they never would. <laughs> so, uh, The Bushwhackers are apparently still under contract at WF, so WCW can't bring them in. What a big loss. <laughs> uh, it goes through the Raw versus Nitro's ratings, and then it just runs down like the whole calendar year, which I'm not going to. There's no matches. He just says, like, Bash of the Beach of the State, Summerslam of the State. It's like the whole year. Uh, WrestleMania is projected as Bret Hart versus the Rumble winner, likely Shawn Michaels, and Diesel versus The Undertaker. This past Monday saw a big change in Doyle's attitude toward the war. The Doyle aired a commercial where the Nacho Man and the Huckster said that they were too old to perform since Powerbomb, Razor Ramon's Powerbomb, Evan Johnson's Powerbomb, and Shawn Michaels' splash off the top rope. The skit was hilarious, with impersonators of Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, and Ted Turner ending with the line, the Doyle are on top of the hill, not over it. They also mentioned Gene Oakland, a personator named Scheme Gene, during the show. By picking three of the key guys in the last 10 years to ridicule, it also showed that Vince must consider those friendships destroyed. Well, I thought the skit was very funny, doubly so since they treated their power bombs as if they were drastically different moves. It shows that Vince McMahon feels the need to openly bash WCW, something he avoided during all of 1995, and he's concerned with the war. Indeed, his predictions for 1996, Dave Meltzer, the editor of The Observer, writes, Vince has already got a major fight in wrestling, one that inevitably the odds are against him because he's trying to use his brains to combat money. And in wrestling, brains usually win out in the short run, but long-term money is hard to beat. McMahon's acknowledgement in a recent interview that he would consider moving Raw to another night, sounds familiar, to avoid the competition shows he recognizes this himself. But even doing more things right than wrong, WCW has money on its side, and it's wrestling talent on its side. It's the television exposure on its side. Although pay-per-view figure is very depending which organization one talks to, based on independent figures, it appears the sides are fairly even. With WCW, if anything, having an advantage because the in-your-house shows are priced less, have less interest, and draw less money. WCW is a big advantage overall on cable as this weekend show kills WF and Monday's even uh, pretty even. WF has a slightly slight syndication advantage, but in overall viewership, WCW, because it has more shows on more stations, has won every week but one. And that was the one following Shawn Michaels' uh, angle when he got knocked out. WDF has a big advantage when it comes to the ability to run house shows, but since that part of the business is a general money loser, and in WDF's case is considered a loss leader, while WCW rarely runs them, whatever advantage WWF has of being the stronger house show promotion is also set by the fact that they're losing money. WCW has stronger talent, WDF has stronger, more organized television, generally better booking. 
While some would argue the booking advantage may not be the case right now, it's inconceivable that if it ever hand or carry out a scenario as poorly as WCW did building up the World Cup at Starcade. But the most important thing is that ODF has to make money at some point. It doesn't appear this is the case for WCW. It's a war of attrition, and this wrestling war appears to be WCW has a very tactical advantage. So that was Melzer, his herb. I thought I'd take a little more time this week to write up some of my thoughts on the war of throughout 1995. The biggest news stories of the year in North American pro wrestling has nothing to do with in-ring action, highlighting the lackluster state of affairs. The biggest news was WCW and Eric Bischoff creating the Monday Nitro amidst much laughter from everyone expecting failure, only to end the year cl- clearly a nose ahead of DF rating-wise. Heck, the mere suggestion of a Monday Night Show in direct competition with flagship Raw, flagship Raw Show had people suggesting comparatively low ratings would be a success. Nobody expected the ratings numbers to be so damn even. How could this happen? Live shows every week. Why doesn't DF follow suit? Live shows every week cost a lot of money. It's ironic to see Vince McMahon, who lifted the to his prominent stature of the 80s, by using money against competitors who had none. In his current situation, it's even more ironic to have him answer the money by attempting to push guys with wrestling ability, the same response that his 1980s competitors offered. It's ultimately ironic to see Dorey staunch supporters bitch that money does not equal a quality product. It's hurting with Dorey these days. Money or a lack thereof cost Smoky Mountain to close after four years. I went to the second Smoky Mountain fan week and had a great majority of the TV shows on tape. It was a promotion I enjoyed watching, and I miss it. I mention this because I can only hope Jim Cornette will take on a bigger role in DODF. In the ring, the ascension of Shawn Michaels to the top of the heap of the regular key performers in North America was a big story. His work ethic this past year was something we've seen seldom in North America. When he disappeared partway through the year after an out-of-the-ring beating in Syracuse, the show suffered. When he returned only to drop out again, things got worse. But he'll return in 96, and all signs of the promotion are running him on top. There's a list of challenges I'll see Sean work, enjoy seeing Sean work with. Hopefully the direction will lead to more matches. WCW has no Shawn Michaels. They've got several great workers underneath. But those guys are not positioned well this year. It's un- unclear how they'll be used. The workers do get to face each other regularly, giving great matches, which at least makes WCW better than the 80s WF, and especially in Michaels absence, better than they are now. They've got several guys that can dance circles around Michaels work rate and work wise, which is no easy feat. But Michael still has more charisma and awesome ring presence and ring psychology. Otherwise, the WF this past year is unmemorable. Diesel was champion and only managed to give good matches when worked against Michaels and Bret Hart. I don't know why he garners praise in this news group. He's absolutely at the same level and ability as Hulk Hogan. His new repackaging is meaningless since he's still at the top of the mix, just sticking around to give us more lousy matches. Somehow he's proven to be the one guy Vince McMahon could turn into a superstar. And such a wrestling... Uh, and sure, a wrestling superstar over the year, much of my sugar. And sure, Horowitz won. May they sold some t-shirts. Along the way, Skip just seemed to be completely wasted. Mabel was pushed to the roof and tried darn hard to beat The Undertaker's lousy match tally. Undertaker's mercifully gone for a while, but still managed to squeeze his way in to some terrible matches. Has he ever had a match that was even mediocre? His presence at the top of the Dota F96 depresses me. Goldust proved to be an enormous disappointment. Dustin Rose went from being one of the best young workers in the business to delivering three lousy matches in his first three matches in the Dota F. There's little hope because his memory of the Dustin's ability is still fresh. That ability has seemingly disappeared. Bret Hart wasted a lot of the year, too, if you with Jerry Lawler and Isaac Yankum. He managed to give us some great matches. Came out of the year as the guy who the promotion can call upon to try to hold things together while a new plan is mapped. Ironic, since that was a role for Ric Flair. Hart's self-chosen nemesis. The more Shawn Michaels rose to the top, the less believable Hart's mantra of the best there is, best there was, best there ever will be sounded. I enjoy Bret Hart, and he did deliver in a pinch, but he's just keeping the belt shine for the best there is right now. Razor Ramon also improved this year, but I'm not gung-ho about him as, uh, as others are. His best matches are still with only other great workers as a level behind. The best story of the year was either the big promotions or Jeff Jarrett's whole shtick. It's good to see him back as the year closed. The tag scene in the was terrible. The Smoky Guns are the only team that can work. 
WCW Hulk Hogan soured things. The Dungeon of Doom was one of the worst ideas since the Black Scorpion. And the whole Hogan versus Dungeon of Doom was abysmal. Actually, the Giant began to show promise at the end of the year, so much so that New Japan expressed interest in using him as a top foreigner. For some reason, the idea of him being Bill as Andre's son upset a lot of people, although I never really did read an explanation of why, other than this is another countless fake relationship gimmick. And it's great. Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Lex Luger were all on top. Luger being a big surprise. These guys have big names and limited skills, except for the Flair versus Savage match earlier and Flair versus Luger versus Sting Triangle match. I didn't see them in anything I liked. The only highlight was WCW was the uh, junior heavyweight wrestlers, Benoit, Guerrero, Malenko, Jerry Lynn, Sabu, and the work that some of the more established stars could do with that. Alex Wright, Brian Pillman, and Johnny B. Bad. Any match involving any of those was at least mediocre, and some were usually good. Some were excellent. Benoit vs. Guerrero from Saturday Night was the TV, best TV match of the year. Eddie Guerrero's over purely on ability. Johnny B. Bad is TV champ. Benoit Pillman are in the horseman. Flair delivered big time every time he was asked, despite continuing criticism that his best years are behind him. The tag division is terrible. Problem Heat is one good wrestler. Benoit and Malenka were great when they were together, and surely coming into the new year, some combination of horsemen could be solid. The year built a really good pay-per-view event that was terribly promoted. The racist overtones of Sonny Ono were sad. For whatever reason, WCW doesn't think its audience can accept Japanese wrestlers based on skill. So there are some good memories of the year with Shawn Michaels, Jeff Jarrett, blah, blah, blah. The year was filled with a lot of Darren Lousy memories. He runs through all those. So I thought it was a pretty interesting take by Herb. Um, I thought Melzer was dead on with all his stuff. Uh, mm. But Grimes, what, what do you think of uh, Herb's notes and this very long form soliloquy, which he very rarely does, but it was a pretty good, I thought it was actually one of his better assessments. Yeah, I agree. I think he was pretty spot on. I, I, he's kind of understand. I think we all obviously, you know, looking back can pretty much agree and say these were pretty shit years, um, you know, for both, for both companies and and i think you know herb kind of laid that out you can really you know sense the cynicism there um it, it's funny there's not a single mention at all of ecw which is understandable because it's you know still sort of and you know it was transitioning and yeah right and he, it's just interesting you know that he goes on and on about how terrible these you know wcw and wwf are at the time but then he hates ecw which is at this time the best of the three, you know, and, and putting out the best matches and, and the best content. And yet he doesn't mention that at all. Um, but it's interesting to hear his take on, on the Monday night wars, knowing that, you know, we're what, about a half a year away from the NWO and all of that. So I, I'm interested to, to hear his takes, you know, in the summer of 96 and, and as things start to, to turn for the better, but yeah, I mean, I think he was pretty spot on. I, I always enjoy his little tidbits, whether I agree with them or not. And, and this one really delivered. So thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, as bad as he was for most of 95 in projecting match cards, uh, he did pretty hit much hit the nail on the head on the talent situation in WWF. Uh, you know, Brett and Sean were the thoroughbreds in terms of matches. There wasn't, you know, Razor was solid. Um, but there was definitely uh, some holes. But WCW should not, and we, and we didn't here, at least JR, WCW should not be taken off the hook like they were the better promotion because they were just as crap in 1995 as as WWF was. And Grimes is right. I mean, uh, ECW, and I remember watching ECW in 95 when it was on, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning on MSG. Uh, it it was definitely much more exciting and seeing guys like, like Cactus Jack, who I saw in WCW, and, the, you know, the two colds and those guys. I really enjoyed uh, seeing them in a different element, and and I I don't know why Herb is ignoring it. He'd be stupid to keep doing that, but um, but he was spot on with his assessments of the big two. 
they were both lacking severely in, in 1995. So he was right about that. Yeah, and I thought Meltzer was good with the wars too and his approach on the TV yeah. and what DF has to do to compete. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's off forgotten that when WCW announced Nitro it was looked at as a bit of a joke and like no chance type of thing. So mm-hmm. um yep. they definitely obviously proved that wrong. Yep. Totally. All right. Uh so let's go ahead to January 18th. He runs down the rumble card, still pretty much the same. He has more names to the Rumble, but there's nothing jumping out as crazy. This will apparently be Mabel's last show. Talk persists that his contract expired will not be renewed. DF has aired both Undertaker and Diesel beating Mabel on TV in recent weeks, which would support this conclusion. Talk continues that Sabu will work the Rumble. Meltzer reports that Sabu came up with a way to book his own elimination where he moonsaults someone on a table in the process going over the top rope to the floor. Skip was announced as being in the Rumble early on, but with the added tag match, I'm assuming he's out. There's also talk that Rick Martell and boxer Peter McNeely will be in the Royal Rumble. Huh. Uh, the, I remember the McNeely r- rumor. Like, I feel like that's been around a bit. Again, right. is just yeah. general internet BS or whatever. Um, all right. The DODF has tried to... Uh, actually, hang on, sorry. Scroll down without meaning to. WCWS Clash of Champions, still pretty much the same card. Uh, he's nursing the flu, so he talks about watching 15 minutes of an episode of Phil Donahue. Uh, and it was uh, had it represented as Extreme Fighting Championship, which is a competitor to UFC. So there you go. I'm not going to get into that. I uh, posted some articles at ODF. It goes all into. Jesus. He's got... All right. I'm going to skip this. It's, it's like another long fucking soliloquy about yeah. Diesel and UFC versus WF. And just, I'm not going to read it all again. I already read one giant fucking block of text. Uh, WCW heard highlights of the one-man gang, or lowlights, of the one-man gang versus Kensei Sasaki U.S. title match that took place after Starcade. It was brutal as gang stinks. At least he won't have the bell long. Super Bowl on February 11th. Ric Flair versus Randy Savage. Hogan versus Giant. Harlem Heat versus Luger and Sting. One-man gang versus Conan. Johnny B. Bad versus DDP. Public Enemy versus Nasty Boys. Uh, and then he runs down the calendar of events as well. So, uh, sorry if anyone was looking forward to uh, Herb's soliloquy on Ultimate Fighting, but uh, not going to dig into that one. Any thoughts so briefly? Nah, same as usual. Yeah, nothing, nothing special here. Yeah. All right, January 26th. The WF's Royal Rumble took place this past Sunday. Predictably, booking has never bothered me much if the actual matches deliver and are great. So I won't have to address this point that seems to have been the focus of the most negative reviews in the news group. I'll mention that it would be nice if positive reviewers don't rant about predictability and other promotions uh, to maintain credibility. In any case, it's sort of relevant to rate the Rumble. The WF is in a holding pattern to WrestleMania to begin Shawn Michaels' reign. Everything done surrounding the Shawn Michaels storyline was thought out and executed perfectly. The seeds for the feuds with Vader, Yokozuna, Diesel, and even Davey Boy Smith were planted. The fact that the whole Michael storyline has been so well done and well handled makes me forget about everything else on the show. Guns versus Bidonis was a good match. Seems like a overly hormonal young guys in the group got so excited about Sonny's butt. This match a little too much. Jarrett versus Johnson was also good. The lowlights, Bret Hart versus Undertaker. Taker is such a lousy gimmick when it comes to actual wrestling. His entrances are moody, and I can understand the character being a bit cool, but why is this part of pro wrestling? Okay, Vince thinks The Undertaker can draw, and it's popular, but let's not forget, fool ourselves and say that wrestling ever passes mediocre. In this match, it was below mediocre. Bret has seemed capable of carrying the gimmick through a whole match. The finish was an absolutely lousy screw job to set up a further show. I could have lived with it if the match was any good, but to deliver crap and piss on it was a little bit much. Goldust versus Razor Ramon. The verdict is officially in on Goldust. They've given up on him actually wrestling. Dustin Rose was a once great wrestler when he showed up. 
as Goldusty stunk out the joint. Nerves, people said. Give the gimmick time. Give him time. In this match, he was almost as lousy as Taker, Jim Duggan, Kamala, and the like. A tremendous drop from where he could be. This is a little harsh, I think. The Rumble itself, <laughs> for whatever reason, this match took out, was one of the worst Rumbles in recent memory. It was booked similar to the three-ring battle royal on WCW, as all the key players had limited focus until the final few minutes. I think that's what hurt it compared to other years. The first 20 or 30 is just a lot going through the motions. Vince's line of the night in response to Hedig pointed out a booking fallacy was, it doesn't have to make sense, it's just a Royal Rumble. Perhaps the most annoying negatives are the illogical explanations and directions that they gave and took all night. I found this very atypical for a WF show. Gorilla Monsoon happens to be watching the free-for-all against the ref to watch a tape and reverse his decision. Later, when 1-2-3-Kid blatantly interferes, we are to believe that Monsoon is no longer watching. The IC title match is somehow less important than the prelim opener. In the strangest move, after Diesel screwed The Undertaker, Monsoon declares Diesel is now the number one contender. I guess losing the Rumble also elevated Diesel. Worse yet, to avoid interference like Diesel had perpetrated, Diesel's match will be in a cage. So not only does he lose and interfere, he gets rewarded and also gets a plum reward. It makes no sense. Overall, I give the show a thumbs in the middle or slight thumbs down. Shawn Michaels handled great. The addition of Vader was super. I like the body Donna's, but there wasn't enough. Classic Champions was a mixed bag. Brian Pillman is on fire as a heel, finally getting an interesting push. The character in short match time hurt the wrestling a bit, but his intensity was amazing. Alex Wright versus Dean Malenko was very good. Wright didn't take Malenko's leg whip in the usual way, but it looked as though he might have really been hurt. That somehow added to the credibility. Conan versus Psychosis was good. Psychosis held back a lot, but still showed a few things, and Conan did a lot more than I'm used to seeing him do. Bringing out Mike Tanay made this match even better. Lowlights, the Elvish stick. It's not like it killed what would have been a great match, though. And Hogan and Savage, as bad as they are, they didn't come close to Goldust or Undertaker. Public Enemy versus Nasty Boys left me indifferent. My opinion is that Johnny Grunge is useless. The street fight match that this brawl set up will no doubt be entertaining, but will likely contain very little wrestling. In deserve a year-end awards, Public Enemy became second for Tag Team of the Year. I also think Sting and Lex Luger storyline is reasonably well-developed. I like that they're at least trying to mix things up. Overall, this is a mild thumbs up. I got some mail from Brian Hildebrand, better known as referee Mark Curtis, asking for comments on the promotion's four-year run, meaning Smoky Mountain. Yeah, Super Brawl, same card. In Your House on February 18th, Brad Hart versus Diesel in a Cage, Goldust versus Razor Ramon, Smoking Guns versus Body Donnas for the tag titles, Shawn Michaels versus Owen Hart, and Undertaker versus Yokozuna in a casket match. <laughs> kind of out of nowhere. Goes to the ratings. Uh, has all the buy rates from 95 for the pay-per-views. Not going to go through that in the schedule. So that's it. A lot to kind of digest, but any final thoughts there? No, he he was he's starting to kind of after being kind of all over the place in '95. I feel like he finally kind of is. I think he's starting to figure out or settle into because I mean we're already we're two months away from Mania, and I guess it is kind of locked in that it's going to be Diesel. Well, I guess Diesel and Taker pretty much have made it pretty transparent, but um, Brett's Brett wasn't going to lose the belt, so but uh. Yeah, I mean, I like how he's so into Pillman, and then <laughs> it doesn't last too much longer. But uh, <laughs> but I'm glad he's so excited about it. What do you think, Grimes? Yeah, I think he's like like you mentioned, Scott. I think he's kind of hit his stride at least, right? There's there's definitely mm. less. It was it certainly seemed like it was more all over the place in '95, and I don't know if, if that was him or if it was just a mixture of the way the companies were running and changing things often. But he seems to be a little bit more locked in. Um, I mean, I thought it was a pretty good assessment he had of the '96 Rumble. Uh, you know, just it wasn't a great show and really not all that memorable. So I, I feel like he was pretty spot on there. Comparing Goldust to Kamala is maybe a little <laughs> bit of a stretch. Um, yeah. but, you know, let's give him a little bit more credit than that. But outside of that, yeah, I, I feel like he's 
he's pretty locked in here. I mean, it's a time where the, the product overall is down and I, you know, he's just kind of reflecting that in his, in his notes here. And I think what's helping him too is uh, the international is getting more reliable with stuff. I mean, it's still the wild west or much of 96, 97, 98, but at least like there's more there versus just kind of him hearing random rumors on a much smaller scale. So I think that's probably helping as well, but hmm. um, all right. Well, listen, you could say WCW is cooking with gas and Donnie F maybe has everything but the girl now that they fired Medusa. And of course, that is the number three song in the nation this week by everything but the girl missing. So uh, that's it. Let's go over to Scott Criscola's Vintage Pop Culture Corner. I step off the train. I'm walking down your street again. And past your door. You don't live there anymore It's years since you've been there And now you disappear Oh, thank you, JR. Uh, uh, except her, but should be called everything but the extreme. Uh, that is number three this week because one sweet day. It has been one sweet stretch for Mariah and Boys to Men. They are number one uh, uh, again. And exhale which Herb is doing after all of that soliloquying at number two from Whitney. And again, missing by everything but the girl at three. One of us, just a slob like one of us. Joan Osborne at number four. Hey, lover. Ella Cool J at number five. Uh, Name by the Goo Goo Dolls at six. Breakfast at Tiffany's. You want to talk about a song that got just played constantly in 95 into 96. Deep Blue Something at six, seven. Be My Lover by LaBouche. At number eight, Before You Walk Out of My Life by Monica at uh, nine, and Nobody Knows by the Tony Rich Project at number 10. So there's your top 10 for uh, this week back in 1996. Let's go from the radio to the movies. What was going on on the big screen on this week? This will be from the week ending, the weekend of February 2nd, uh, 1996. Let's get a look at the top 10. At number 10, I for an Eye, Paramount. Number nine, how about this? Early George Clooney, From Dusk Till Dawn. Does everyone remember the name of the bar in From Dusk Till Dawn? Anybody? Grimes, do you remember? Not the I, I'll, I'll remember when I hear it, I'm sure. The Titty Twister. <laughs> okay. That's what it was called, the Titty Twister. No Blue Oyster, but I'll take it. It is no Blue Oyster bar. No, absolutely not. Um, anyway, little uh, Quentin. It was actually a Quentin movie. Quentin was in that. It wasn't his movie. It was a Robert Rodriguez movie, but but Quentin uh, was in the movie, Quentin Tarantino. That was number nine. Uh, number eight, 12 Monkeys. Number seven, Biodome. Um, number six, Dead Man Walking. Number five, Bed of Roses. We have three uh, premieres, uh, debuts in the top four this week. Number four, White Squall. Totally sounds like a Disney uh, animal movie. Number three, tremendous film. Make a lot of money. Almost won. Uh, he probably should have won an Oscar. Mr. Holland's Opus with Richard Dreyfus. Tremendous movie. Number two, The Juror. That was a debut. Alec Lord Baldwin Juror. and Demi Moore for Juror. I believe that's a, that's a Grisham book. And the number one movie of the week. Made 12 million. Made 12 million. It's opening week. Mr. Spade and Mr. Farley, Black Sheep. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that, Jr. Black Sheep? No. 
Black Sheep's good. Tommy Boy's better. I think Tommy Boy's better too, actually. Grimes, what do you think? I like Black Sheep. I, yeah, it's a good movie. It's kind of a weak top ten, I would say. But yeah, it's a, time, it's a weird time of the year. You know, it's not. You know, you're not getting your blockbusters or anything like no, that. No, so. no, we did that. In, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, to we, be expected. There's, there's there's some big movies coming out, obviously later in the year. Some really yes. big ones. So. Yes, totally. So this, um, this is fine. Yeah, there you go. So there we go. Uh, we are past the Super Bowl. Dallas Cowboys win yet again. They win Super Bowl 30, defeating yes. the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> I saw that coming. Uh, beating the Pittsburgh Steelers uh, by the score of uh, 27 to 17. They haven't done fuck all since. Yeah, well, you know what? Joe Namath says, I control your destiny. Um, hey, he apologized today. I'll give him that. <laughs> did, you remember, did you remember what he even said? Was he he apologized. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, NBA on this date. There were five games. Uh, Phoenix blew out Atlanta, 120-84. to 84. Speaking of Atlanta, that's where we are tonight. Celtics beat the Grizzlies, who were still in Vancouver. I think this was their first, te- first season, I think. 131-98. to 98. Uh, Cleveland beat Milwaukee, 81-71. Utah, 98. Portland, 94. And the Spurs beat the Clippers, 115-106. to 106. So at this point in the season, Orlando leads the Atlantic at 31-12. and 12. Uh, We'll skip the Bulls for a minute. Uh the Spurs and the Jazz are in a virtual tie in the Midwest. They're both 15 games over 500. Spurs are 28 and 13. Jazz are 29 and 14. And in the Pacific, the Sonics lead at 32 and 11. So, after 42 games of the 1995-96 season, the Chicago Bulls are 39 and 3. This is the year. Insane. 39 and 3. The Hornets, 21 and 21. The Lakers were 25 and 18. This was their last season before, uh, speaking of Diesel, uh, came to the West Coast. Yeah, the Hornets, uh, their window's kind of closed at this point of the original Muggsy, right. LJ, Zoe, Zoe kind of. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Zoe, Zoe's, yeah, Zoe's gone. Right after I, think Zoe's already, I think Zoe's already in Miami. Yeah. LJ's still there. I don't think he goes to the Knicks. Their run is really like 92 to 90, 95. It was like their full yeah. year. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, I'm pretty sure LJ is still there. I don't think he goes to the Knicks for a couple of eh, years. It's like another year later. Yeah. Um, on the Frozen Pond in the NHL, there were nine games. Sabres beat the Panthers 6 one Stars play to a 1-1 tie. Blackhawks beat the Oilers 4-0. Whalers beat the Kings 6-4. Ducks beat the Avalanche 2-1, Canadians over the Caps 5-3, Bruins beat the Senators 3-1, Lightning over the Penguins 4-1, and the Blues beat the Maple Leafs 4-zip. Rangers lead the Atlantic with 70 points, Penguins lead the Northeast with 65, Red Wings lead the Central with 74, and the Avalanche lead the Pacific with 61. And finally, on this date, January 31st, 1996, we are, of course, in the middle of season six of uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, this is one of those. I wouldn't say this is a very special episode, but it was it was serious in some ways. Uh, the episode is called Nancy's Choice. Again, it aired on January 31st, 1996. Susan is nominated for a College Journalism Award for her story about a girl's decision to have an abortion. Brandon does not understand why Jonathan insists on flying in for the award ceremony. 
Susan explains that she and Jonathan broke up over a difference of opinion regarding the story. This further confuses Brandon. Susan wins the award and bursts into tears during her speech. She confesses to Brandon that the story was about herself. Devastated uh, by her sister's death, she had a drunken encounter with Jonathan and wound up pregnant. Jonathan proposed to her, <coughs> excuse me, and was crushed when she chose to terminate the pregnancy. Jonathan offers Susan his forgiveness, although she still has doubts about her decision. Meanwhile, Valerie arranges a meeting between Colin and a knowledgeable art buyer in the hopes of encouraging Colin to get clean and focus on his career. Un unfortunately, the man purchases two works that Colin had painted while high and convinces Colin that the drug is his friend. Kelly swears off cocaine but cannot resist temptation for long. Also, Steve runs into L, guest star Monica Schneer, the transvestite he met in Palm Springs last season. Remember uh, L, uh, JR? Uh, I do, yes. Uh, during a shopping excursion with Claire. Claire refuses to believe that L is a man. L attends the uh, journalism conference and ends up on a date with Claire's father. Steve pleads with L to hide the truth from the chancellor as he hasn't dated for a while and is very fragile. And Claire overhears to her delight. Steve saying to L that he's in love with the chancellor's daughter. Ah, Steve. I loved, I love Claire. L was the old uh, Mark Henry Sammy storyline a little early. Exactly. You gonna be yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. But <laughs> penis. You gonna be penis. Lotto's favorite penis. Anyway, that was the episode that aired on this date, January 31st, 1996, and that is your pop culture corner. All right, uh, so I guess we can finally go ahead and move along. We're gonna fast forward 14 years to January 31st, 2010 for. 2010 Royal Rumble. For the Phillips Arena in Atlanta, Georgia, 16,697 in attendance, 462,000 buys. The 23rd edition of the Royal Rumble, Georgia's fifth ever pay-per-view, the third that's been in Atlanta proper. The last one there was Backlash 07. It's also the second Royal Rumble ever held in the Phillips Arena. Mr. Grimes, do you remember the first? Um, 90, probably in the 90s, right? No, actually, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say. Oh, was was oh one there? Very close, my friend. 2002, the return of Triple H. Okay. Oh uh, yes. one was New Orleans, so old uh, NFC South yeah. rivalry back to back. Yes. Early 2000s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the December 14th Raw was a special three-hour edition with Des Miller as a guest host. Was also the 2009 Slammy Awards Superstar of the Year was John Cena. Diva of the Year, Maria. Tag Team of the Year, Jericho. Match of the Year, Michaels. Undertaker from Mania. Breakout Star of the Year is Seamus. Shocker of the Year, Punk forcing Jeff Hardy to leave WWE. Raw guest host, Bob Barker. Most extreme moment, Jeff Hardy hitting a swanton off a giant ladder onto Punk at SummerSlam. And the oh my moment of the year is Michael Cole puking on Chris Jericho on the SmackDown's 10th anniversary. 
12-9 was the seventh annual tribute to the troops. 12-21, Johnny Damon was guest host of Raw, and a week later was Timbaland. 12-29-09, sadly saw the passing of Dr. Death Steve Williams at the age of 49. And on that same day, The Marine 2 was released. House shows on January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd were canceled due to bad weather. A day later, Tommy Dreamer and DJ Gabriel were released. So, Mr. Dreamer, a uh, pretty long run comes to an end there. Mm -hmm. uh, that same day, of course, we talked about Bret Hart served as guest host. Uh, a week later, Tony Hom, known as Ludwig Borga, passes away at age of 47. Wow. He was shot, wasn't he? Was his wife or something crazy? Or did he kill no, himself? No, he, uh, he um, I just watched a thing about him. Uh, was he shot or I thought it was a heart condition, actually. No, I thought his wife killed him or some crazy shit. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I think it's well, something else. I'll, I'll check. Go ahead and keep going. Right. Uh, on January 11th, Mike Tyson was the guest host. On the 17th, Eric Escobar was released. Huh. January 18th, Don Johnson and John Hader served as guest hosts. A week later, Psych star Dulé Hill was the guest host. Two days later, Chris Jericho and Gregory Helms were arrested at 5 a.m. for public intoxication in Erlinger, Kentucky. Both were released on a $120 bond. And on January 28th, Dirty After Music Volume 10, A New Day was released as an Amazon oh. exclusive. He committed suicide. Okay, so he shot himself. I knew those he shot himself. Yeah, he shot himself. Yep. All right, dark match for this evening. Kelly Kelly, Gail Kim, Eve Torres, and the Bella Twins took on Maurice, Natalia, Alicia Fox, Jillian Hall, and Katie Lee. And a 10 Diva tag. And that brings us into the arena with a very basic video focusing on the kickoff of the road to WrestleMania. Michael Cole welcomes us in, gets things rolling. He'll be calling the show, the whole show with Jerry the King Lawyer and Matt Stryker tonight. So just a one uh, single booth here. Mm -hmm. And they lay out what is ahead tonight, Scott. That brings us to our opening match for the ECW Championship as Christian takes on Ezekiel Jackson. So how did Big Zeke earn this title shot, Scott? Well, uh... This will be, and we'll get more into this in a couple of weeks on our next show, JR, but this is the final pay-per-view appearance of the ECW Championship. So we'll explain why. Uh, I don't think it's mentioned here. No. Uh, we'll explain why uh, in a couple of weeks on our next show. On the 1215 ECW, General Manager Tiffany announced the ECW Homecoming, which would feature 16 former and current ECW superstars, and they would compete in a series of matches with the winner earning an ECW title shot at the Rumble that night, Jackson defeated Vladimir Kozlov and Kane defeated Zack Ryder to advance. On the 1222 episode of ECW, Vance Archer, Vance Archer, defeated Goldust while Yoshitatsu defeated Jack Swagger to advance. On the 1229 episode, Matt Hardy defeated Finley and Evan Bourne, Evan Bourne, defeated Mike Knox to advance. On the 1-5 ECW, Shelton Benjamin defeated Chavo and CM Punk defeated Mark Henry. The next week on 112, Jackson defeated Kane, Archer, Tatsu, Hardy, Bourne, Benjamin, and Punk in a battle royal to earn the shot. The following week on the 119 episode, Christian defeated William Regal by DQ when Jackson got involved and both men would lay Christian out. And the following week on 126, Jackson and Regal defeated Christian and Kane in a tag when Jackson pinned Christian. And here we are. All right. And dive right in. ECW title on the line. Cole says Christian is the longest reigning ECW champion of all time. 
Big Zeke has his brawl for all theme, led by William Regal. Cole reminds us Jackson won the homecoming battle royal to get this shot. They talk about Regal and what he's done for Ezekiel. Christian tries to find an opening early, but Zeke overpowers his attempts. The crowd is loud behind Christian here. Christian slaps Zeke and baits him into a chase. He sticks and moves. It's a plancha. Zeke overpowers in the ring, punching through comebacks. Regal tries to get involved. He gets ejected to a pop. Zeke stays on top outside, shooting Christian to the steps, hammering away in the ring. Focusing on the neck, Zeke counters a top rope sunset flip with a choke slam. He is rolling through this match. He keeps grinding the neck and head, alternating submission holds and clubbing strikes. Christian hits a boot, hits a flying back elbow, and starts to heat up with a flurry. He ends up back on top, but misses a swan dive. Zeke wrecks him with a lariat, gets a good near fall, and gets two on a backbreaker. They run through some counters into a Christian sleeper, but Zeke turns that into an Oklahoma stampede. Christian slips free and hits a kill switch and retains his title in a good, hard-fought battle. Uh, I thought Zeke worked a really good uh, match here strong showing christian is so good at these matches uh the crowd is into it just a quality opening wrestling match it kept simple to the point scott uh zeke's power was sharp christian rolls on and i went three stars uh as i expected as i was research looking this up while you were talking uh christian does not have the longest reign uh as champion his longest reign this reign is the Fifth longest at 204 days. The longest reign was your boy, the franchise, Shane Douglas. For sure. He had it forever. Uh, The reign that started on November 30th, 1997 at November to remember, he held it for 406 days. Then Raven in January of 96, 252. Taz, January of 99, 252. And then Shane again, Shane March of ninety four, mm-hmm. three eighty yeah, five. So, Chris, so get a grip, uh, Michael, um, Maggle. Uh, solid match, you know, nothing crazy. I it's a shame because uh, it's a shame because uh, you know it was kind of recognizable for Christian. He had actually, you know, with Edge out, um, Christian was actually getting some a little shine without being you know his brother's or Edge's you know lackey or whatever. Not lackey, but you know what I mean. He's he's got his own shine, and being champion here and kind of being very elder statesmanish and being very experienced, uh, it leads to a great match. Zeke is Zeke. It's you know, it's, you're not going to get, you're only going to get the best you can um, out of him. Um, ECW is definitely on its last legs. I mean, at this point, it's time to do what they would end up doing, which we'll talk about more uh, in a couple weeks, but. Um, This was probably one of the problems with the roster in 2009 going into 2010. You had this this ECW brand, which pretty much had no identity of ECW at all. The belt doesn't even look like a ECW belt. It's when when that changed over, you knew that that the 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 integrity or the of ECW was gone because it didn't have like the drippy blood and everything. It was just it was a WWE looking uh championship, you know, big silver giant and everything perfect not you know messed up or anything and it just it was not uh it was not the ecw obviously that that we enjoyed when they kind of started it up in 2000 or restarted it up i guess in uh in 2006 after one night stand because those two one night stands were were pretty boss uh but the match was good grimes um i will give you my grade when this fucking (laughs) google sheet loads uh, but, uh, I thought it was decent. It's a shame. I think Christian 
showed a lot of his experience during this run. Um, Ezekiel Jackson's okay, but you could definitely tell that that the brand is on life support. You know, it seems like they Matt, Matt Stryker, well, I think is the one that mentioned that Christian was the longest reigning champion, him or Cole, but it seems like they just neglect to remember that there was an actual ECW and all they Correct. talk about is WWE ECW. I know. It's ridiculous. I, I interpreted that as he's the longest reigning, you know, WWE ECW. Yeah, it's gotta be with yeah. Matt. Yeah. Which I guess obviously is correct based on on you know because that belt switched like every two or three months you know before Christian had it uh, for the most right. part. So right. um, yeah, I mean Christian's a perfect guy to open a show, especially a big show like this, because the fans are so behind him. And you know, J- you know, you mentioned it, JT. I thought Zeke was fine. I thought he he was just fine. But I still just feel like overall Christian deserved better. You know, he was. The ECW brand, obviously, an afterthought at this point. And Christian was a big enough star at this point, especially coming back from Impact. I think mm-hmm. he could have had yeah. a, main, a feud on the one of the main brands. Like, I I, I think there, you know, there was a, a chance for him, especially with Edge out and, you know, with some shuffling of things around. I think there was there would have been a spot for him to have more of a high-profile feud rather than dragging along Ezekiel Jackson, who was basically – 2010s version of Vladimir Kozlov, right? Who's basically 2008's version of Heidenreich. Like it's it's the same formula with yep. these kind of yep. slow plotting sort of big right. guys that have right. their, their cup of coffee and and then that's that. So I thought Christian deserved a little bit better, but obviously he always delivers a good match. Um, and Zeke played his part, I think, just fine. So I also gave it a three out of five. I actually gave it two and three. I actually gave it two and three. All right, Teddy Long and Tiffany flirt about GM life backstage. As Crime Time comes in, they call themselves the Ziploc Boys since they stay fresh. They want to know why only one of them can be in the Rumble. Teddy tells them to flip a coin. He's not going to let them both in. Chad says they coerce someone to give them a spot. They call in great Kali to review the deal. They get Kali's spot, and Kali gets to kiss Tiffany. Tiffany does not like that deal. Ranjan Singh comes in and says the deal is off, and they keep it real. And they say they get their slang from Family Matters, and Kali mimics Urkel. Teddy says Crime Time looked like fools with their pants on the ground. Everyone starts chanting about it. Miz comes in and says he's a true pop culture icon. Nobody will remember what these guys are doing five years from now, just like who let the dogs out. But everyone will remember Miz winning the Royal Rumble. Teddy says no guest hosts here, and he makes the rules. Miz will defend the U.S. title against MVP tonight in addition to being in the Rumble. Uh, pretty usual nonsense here, but Teddy's finally showing some freaking balls. His <laughs> GM uh, instead of being a pushover cuck that he's been through most of the last couple of years. So mm. he uh, forces Miz into this match. Elsewhere, Randy Orton is stewing. Cody Rhodes comes in and says they won't let what they built slip away. They're there for Warren in the title match with Sheamus. Orton thanks Cody, and Cody says he can't say the same for Ted. It's not been the same since the movie The Marine came out. Cody says Ted is talking about winning the Rumble, going to Mania, and beating Orton for the title, which is crazy because they're a unit. Maybe Ted will get it out of his system tonight. Cody obviously stirring up drama in Legacy. We'll get to more about them in a minute. But Scott, up next is that U.S. title match between MVP and The Miz. It's unplanned, of course, but is there some history between these two we need to know about? Uh, a little, sir. On the 1-4 Raw, uh, we watched this, actually. Uh, MVP defeated Mark Henry, Jack Swagger, and Carlito in a fatal four-way to become number one contender while Miz did commentary. The following week on one eleven. Uh, Miz cut a promo talking about how he was mistreated when he came to WWE through, though he now has his own locker room and said he would humiliate MVP and MVP would interrupt and talked about moving on from his past as he brought up being in jail for nine and a half years, which led to a brawl with MVP clearing Miz from the ring. The following week on 118, guest host John Hader. What was he in at that time? 
Well, he was with Don Johnson. So were they in a movie together? I think they had some crappy movie together. Yeah. I was going to say, this is way after... Uh, what I feel like it? I have a vague recollection. This is after... The, the boy died. It was like after, after five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well after, after that. After his, this is after his heyday. Uh, yeah. When in Rome, they did. It looks. I think it was like a rom-com. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, he brought out Miz, who he called his friend. As Miz thanked him for putting him in the Rumble, and MVP would come out and insult both men as he declared he was entering the Rumble as well. And the two men brawled until the big show came out and saved Miz and Hater by knocking MVP out. On the 125 Raw, MVP cut a promo on Miz, who interrupted and ran on MVP, having served time in jail. And Miz would cost MVP a match against Big Show, though MVP would cost Miz a match later that night against Kofi. And here we are. Not a bad cast for this rom-com. Um, looks like it's in the vein of one of our favorites. It's complicated. It's got Kristen Bell, Josh DeMille, um, John Hader, Danny DeVito, Dax Shepard's in it, Will Arnett. So a lot of... You know, bit players, Bobby. The minute you said Kristen Bell, you knew Dak Shepard was going to be in it at some point. So, <laughs> Shaq and uh, Lawrence Taylor and David Lee are in it as themselves. So, it must be taken. Is uh, I'm guessing is were they married at this point? I'm gonna look, I'm gonna check. Kristen Bell, uh, they, they got married in they began dating in 07, engaged, right, they, in, in they were engaged right when this came out. Yeah, they got married they in 2013. 2013. Yeah, so there you go. Okay, so. All right, well, that's what they're promoting. Uh, the Miz is out forced to defend against his rival unplanned here. MVP stalks out focus. Big spot for him to grab back his beloved gold. MVP starts hot with a flurry of strikes and covers to wear down the Miz. Uh, Striker talks about MVP being a student of the game and what the title means to him. MVP gets a nice back suplex for two. Miz bails out. Outside, Miz unloads as King fixes up, mixes up Sherry Shepard and calls her Sharon as MVP kicks MVP to the floor, <laughs> works the back. If you remember, Sherry Shepard and MVP had like a weird little dolly ounce going on there. Yeah. Um, MVP cranks the neck. He stomps away into a three, uh, trying to get to find a three count while also slowing things down. MVP rallies back, tries to wake the crowd up with the ball and elbow. MVP tries a playmaker, but Miz pushes him off. Miz gets a Yakuza kick for two and keeps pushing through, but can't finish off Miz. Miz dodges a running kick and tries the skull-crushing finale, but MVP slips into a victory roll for two, and two more quick near falls on cradles. MVP bails out. MVP drags him right back in, but he walks into a small package, and Miz retains the gold. MVP attacks Miz after the bell to booze. Not much doing here. Miz uh, getting better, still slips step slow. MVP struggled to really work this into a hot finishing stretch due to the pace difference between the two. Miz winning is the right call. I think he's just, you know, pushing through sheer force here and improving. MVP is better served to help at this point, I think, than like have a long title reign. I think Miz holding the belt and finding ways to win is better. The post match was interesting. Looks like a heel turn could be coming for MVP, Mr. Grimes. I went two and a half stars. Yeah, my my initial thought was I didn't remember MVP sticking around this long, to be mm -hmm. honest. Uh, it's 2010, and, and he's still kind of yep. kicking the tires, which, you know, looking back, I, I guess I felt like he had he had left before that. Um, and he got pretty much no response during his entrance, which kind of tells you, you know, where he was at at that time. Yeah, um, they just haven't put any what, focus on him. Yeah, what, what I thought was interesting, um, and you mentioned too, yeah, Miz had to go over in this match. And, and really the first two matches, there was really no threat of a title change. Um, as far as I was concerned, it didn't really seem like either title were in jeopardy. But what I thought was interesting is that 
um, you know, both of these men um, kind of made their main roster debuts around the same time um, in the summer of 06. And if you would have told someone in 2006 that one of these men would be on an upward trajectory and the other one would be floundering, I think a lot of people would have thought it'd be the reversal, right? MVP came in, this, you know, they were saying he's the big, greatest acquisition in SmackDown mm-hmm. history, and he has all these high-profile feuds. He's, you know, he ends up feuding with Kane and obviously, you know, Benoit. He's got the Undertaker stuff. Miz comes in, he's got the stupid hair. He's hosting the Diva Search. And now you fast forward four years later and, you know, Miz is holding a secondary title and, and is, is really on the way up. And MVP is just a, another guy on the roster. So I found that pretty interesting is that I think a lot of people – you would go back to 06 and, and make a bet on which one of these guys would have more success. I think a lot of people would have taken MVP. Um, I thought it was nothing more than a TV match. I gave it um, two and three quarters. Uh, I gave it two and a half. Um, yeah, I mean, this was fine. Miz is, Miz is working his, his hardest. Uh, your match time. Uh, the, the opener was 11.59. This one was seven and a half. Uh, yeah, Miz... Miz... You could just tell by the by his by the way he's working and the way he's pushing along that this is a guy WWE really wants to keep and wants to be one of those kind of like glue guys. And he's you know, he he's changed his his look. He looks more serious now. The stupid fucking fedora and all that crap is gone now. The whole real world look. Mm-hmm. He is serious now. And I do think that um, I do think that uh, Miz is working harder to be that guy that can be the glue of the company, but he's getting there. He's getting there. MVP is not a glue guy. Um, I think they like MVP's kind of you know gimmick, but like I mean, he could have like been, Grimes, but... yeah. But like Grimesy said, you know, it's he's just not. He just doesn't have that. You know, it's just not it. So, um, you know, here he is here just kind of putting Miz over. Miz is trying, though. Like, I feel like he's got a very long, like a very long rope. Uh, if that's if that makes if that's what I'm thinking. Um, uh, a long leash, I said. He's, you know, and he's going to keep trying. I think that I think they just like seeing him in this role. He's a great heel. Everyone he knows that everyone thinks he's a fucking douchey, smarmy prick. So why not jump into that? Why not, you know, uh, embrace it? That's really what it comes down to. And if he can adapt his in-ring with his doucheness, you got gold. Kind of like or It's a lot like Orton in like 04. He's a lot like Orton in 04. Kind of trying to embrace the douche mm. to go along with growing his, his in-ring work. So Yeah, and that's a spot that they need, right? They really need... That that's kind of always been that trope is like the douchey sort of frat boy heel that you want to see get beat up, right? And they they kind of right. always need that. Like if Orton obviously is has graduated from that role at this point, and so there's a void for that. And I think they tried to fill it with uh, you know a Mr. Kennedy, a Jack Swagger, and those guys didn't work out. And I think they just saw you know Miz is a guy that he's really working at it, and let's give him a chance to kind of take that spot that these other guys have dropped the ball at a little bit, right? Yeah, and, and you can see, I mean, Mrs. Comfort from being on TV, like right. a bunch of TV, all those challenges and right. everything else, like exactly. clearly, you know, shows, right? Like it's, it's yep. one aspect he didn't have to 
truly come up on, right? He had to learn the rest, but he was already comfortable on the mic. And, you know, he's gone on to have a near almost or coming up on 20 years of him um, being a top player in the company and, and showing no signs of slowing up in that regard. So, And, and one of the good guys, which is funny because, you know, I know he got bullied in the early days. He was kind of hated because he came in with a little bit of attitude, but he's definitely one guy you like never really hear any problems with backstage or anything negative. It just seems to go about his business. Yep. You know, he's got his TV show, got his hot wife, his kids. <laughs> like he's, he definitely won. We'll say that. Uh, Jericho runs into a big show backstage. Show tries to walk away, but Jericho wants to talk. Show says Jericho's jealous that him and the Miz have had better chemistry than Jericho. And Miz is a better partner. Jericho says he's sorry for show dealing with an arrogant, egotistical, selfish man like Miz, who's using him for a personal agenda. Show says <laughs> Jericho did the same thing. But Jericho says, well, we were the greatest tag team ever. Jericho took him to new heights, made him a giant destroyer, and they still have that chemistry. Jericho says he knows Big Show will show his, show his loyalties in the Rumble if it's down to them and Miz. Show says his loyalties are to himself. He'll throw them both out. Our truth comes in and says he'll throw out Jericho if show doesn't. Jericho says truth has to go through show first, but when he turns, show is gone, and truth says it's every man for himself, and Jericho says he will win. DiBiase comes over, he wishes uh, Randy Orton luck. It's basically a remake of uh, what we saw earlier with Cody. Uh, he shits on Cody, he says he's been acting weird, and he wants to go to Mania. So Orton's clearly got a lot to consider here. As his stable mates both seem to be trying to play the other off of him. Right. And that brings us to our world title match, and that is Randy Orton challenging Sheamus for the WWE title, Scott. Uh, what's brought us to this match here? All right. Well, on the 12-21 Raw, Legacy would lose a six-man tag to Kofi, Evan Bourne, and Mark Henry. The following week on 12-28, uh, Orton confronted Rhodes and DiBiase, saying he was done with Legacy after their loss last week, while Rhodes and DiBiase reminded Orton of all the help they gave him the past year, and Orton threatened to kick both men out of Legacy if they lost their matches. Well, DiBiase beat Bourne, Rhodes defeated Mark Henry to keep their spots, and in the main event, Cena would defeat Sheamus by DQ to retain the world the WWE title. On the 1-4 Raw, Rhodes and DiBiase confronted Orton and told him he would be kicked out of Legacy if he lost his match. Orton would defeat Kofi to keep his spot. On the 1-11 Raw, Sheamus confronted guest host Mike Tyson, until Orton, Cena, and Kingston all interrupted and demanded a title shot while Sheamus demanded to have the Rumble off. And Tyson announced a triple threat match to determine the number one contender between Orton, Cena, and Kofi, and Orton would win. On the 118 Raw, Sheamus defeated Bourne in a non-title match as Orton came out after the two had a stare down. And later that night, Orton defeated Chris Masters as Sheamus gave him the brogue kick after the match and stood over on top of him. And on the 125 Raw, Legacy lost a match to DX and Orton, confronted them as he said he would defeat Sheamus with or without their help. And later that night, Sheamus lost to Cena by DQ and Orton would give Sheamus the RKO. So it was really more about Orton and, and legacy and Sheamus was just kind of there. It seemed like. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of been Sheamus's run <laughs> so far. Yeah. Like he lucked into the title. We talked about the way he won um, and not been presented strongly. And we'll see if, if that continues here, but it's, um, yeah, it's one of those ones where you wonder if winning the belt was really the right call. If he was more productive for him to work his way up the card and, and you know, eventually get there, right? Some some guys win the belt 
arm presented strongly, the rain ends, and they weren't really better for it. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh, big spot for Sheamus, though. Still new as champion. Top contender on a major show against him. Can he show up as legit? We'll see. Big pop for Ernie Sanchez to the ring. Still on a great run uh, over the last couple of years. King giggles about the difference in skin color between these two men. As we get intros and get rolling, Stryker says the WWE titles never changed hands at Atlanta. We ease in with some pacing and feeling out, sticking and moving. Sheamus lands a hard clothesline, a chest breaker. Orton bails out of pain. Orton comes in and starts to work the leg with his precision offense. Orton methodically works it until he misses a charge, slams shoulder first to the post. Both guys are hurting as Sheamus starts to grind away as the crowd gets restless. They trade off control now, working each other's bodies. Uh, injured body part with slow aggression. The crowd wakes up for Orton as he stalks the champ. Sheamus gets two on an arm breaker, then cranks an arm bar as we go back and forth. They devolve into a slugfest. Sheamus gets a backbreaker for two. Sheamus loads the Celtic cross, but Orton slips free and kicks Sheamus to the floor. Orton drags Sheamus back inside and smashes him with a hanging DDT for two. Orton lines up the punt, but Sheamus bails out. Orton follows and lays into the champion, but Sheamus shoves him into the post. Cody Rhodes is out. He hits Sheamus from behind, which allows Orton to hit an RKO, but the ref disqualifies Orton for the interference. That gets a lot of booze. Cody pleads his case after the match, but Orton kicks the shit out of him. DiBiase comes in to save, and Orton beats him down as well. He rants, and Sheamus comes in and hits a bro kick and lays out uh, all legacies left laid out. So pretty interesting structure. They ebbed back and forth, working the limbs. No sustained segments. The crowd was up and down. Very sluggish pace, though. Hard to get into. Uh, it picked up down the home stretch, but the finish was frustrating. It did fit the story of Orton telling Legacy to leave him alone, and now they screwed him. But Sheamus does not look strong at all. He gets bailed out again, just like he did when he won the title. And it feels like, to your point, Scott, just kind of a a pawn at this point. I don't know, using him for other stuff. It's it's not a good reign um, at all, and it's not making him look strong in any way. So I went two and a half on the match. Uh, nothing popped for me, including the finish. Yeah, this is. I, I feel like uh, I gave. I mean, what did I give? I gave this. I gave it two and a half. And your match time, I think it's twelve, about twelve and a half. I think. Let me see. Uh, it was. Yeah, twelve twenty-four. Here's the problem. Wanted a big pop at that December pay-per-view. Because the December pay-per-view historically gets crap buy rates. So why not get, um, you know, a huge upset? Because Cena's one of those guys, you know, when it comes to winning or losing, who cares? Um, and so you get the big pop, and then you're like, oh, well, what the fuck do we do with this guy now? I don't know. I'll throw some match at him, and we'll get it off him soon. And that's what happened. They, this was all about getting that cheap pop at TLC. And then after that, I was like, oh, whatever. We'll use them for other things. So here is your WWE champion being used for something else while these other more important, apparently, feuds are going on. And we'll it's, see if uh, it's a if there's a means to the end on this, right? Is he going to right. put someone over at Mania? Is he going to kick off a big run? Or is he just a transitional back to Cena? Like, where are we going to go with it? You know what I mean? So Exactly. Like, it, yeah. Is he just going to sit around and help? And he's not putting anybody over because he's still the champ. But, you know, is he is he just going to be here to kind of be the glue for other things and just happen to be champion? Oh, come on. Stop whining. You have a belt. That's almost how it feels like. Like, yeah, just let just do what we say and you'll keep it till we don't want you to have it anymore. And that's exactly what this feels like, Grimes. It's just like, well, you know, we needed a cheap pop at this December show that gets no fucking clicks. 
So let's do it. Cena gets, you know, gets upset. The, the Even the match itself. And if you go back to, to, to that episode, everyone, if you haven't had a chance to listen yet, uh, you know, we pretty much said that it was an accident. He won in the first place. So they didn't even make him look good when he won it at all. Right. It was all about the visual of this guy coming in and upsetting John Cena. That's all it was about how he did it. What happens after he did it was completely not on anybody's radar. They just needed the belt to switch for a, a, a shock value of that show. And since that point, Grimes, it just seems like Sheamus is just kind of there and people are doing things around him. Yeah, a lot. None of this really made too much sense for me. The the only, obviously, the only positive thing about the Sheamus win really is that you get a couple fresh matchups. Like, you know, this is the first of many, many Sheamus Orton matchups, but it's the first. So it was mm-hmm. nice to see a fresh matchup. Sure. You know, it's not Cena Orton. You know, let's, right. let's you know, think about that. But just didn't make sense it wasn't necessary to insert the champion into the orton legacy storyline you know those things could be separated you know if you wanted to i think it would have made more sense i know you don't want to have seen seen and sheamus again right because they've been feuding over the past month since you know before tlc but i would say give cena one last chance put him in like a steel cage you know do cena sheamus with some sort of gimmick and then just have orton in the rumble and have legacy screw him in the rumble if you wanted to get to the the breakup it didn't make sense for orton who's still technically a heel, but obviously on the verge of turning against Sheamus the heel. I feel like the crowd, you know, you want to cheer Orton, but then you're like, well, we haven't been cheering this guy forever. It just seemed, none of it really made a lot of sense to me. Uh, And, you know, and then the match, the styles just didn't work either. It was too slow for me. Uh, It was just, it never really picked up. This is the rumble. This is a major show. I want excitement out of my title match. You know, I, I'm not the Rumble. I want, give me Triple H Cactus. Give me Sinu Umaga. Like, I, you know, I want something like that for my Rumble title match. I don't want this BS that's just two guys sort of, you know, meandering. And, and maybe it was because it's the first time they faced each other and they really couldn't hit, you know, a second gear. We've obviously seen better from these guys in the future. You know, we'll see some better matches. But this didn't do it for me. The finish didn't make any sense. Like, Cody comes and he and he hits Sheamus, but the ref doesn't DQ him right away. He wait, he allows Randy, he allows the match to keep going and for Orton to hit the RKO, and then he calls for the bell. <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, no, didn't. If you're gonna do that, just it's almost like uh, throw it a holding flag two minutes after the fucking hold. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like that, and like you don't need to protect Orton like that at this point. Orton is, is he doesn't need to be protected. He's bulletproof. Like Seamus needs a, 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 an actual win. He should have gotten a pinfall here. Just have Cody come out on the stage, have Orton turn around to yell at him and turn into a bro kick, you know, and Seamus pins him. Then at least you've got your champion going over, you know, a top guy and it's not this stupid schmoz DQ finish. So none of this made any sense to me. I gave it two and a half just because it's, it's Seamus and Orton. I'll give them that. They both know what they're doing. Just, it just didn't work for me this time around. All right. Uh, we get a video package for our next match, which is Mickey James taking on Michelle McCool, Scott. This has uh, been definitely quite the feud and one that was pretty controversial at the time. Uh, so why don't you tell us what brought us to the title match here? Yes, we'll see why it was controversial. So on the 12-14 uh, Raw, uh, Mickey James teamed with Melina, Maria, Kelly Kelly, the Bellas, and Gail Kim to defeat McCool, Layla, Rosa Mendez, Beth Phoenix, Maurice, Natalia, and Alicia Fuggs in a 14 Diva tag. On the Christmas SmackDown, Lay Cool confronted James and seemingly apologized to her for insulting her, though they would give a gift certificate to Jenny Craig as a gift 
And later that night, James and Maria defeated Phoenix and Layla as James confronted McCool, only for Phoenix to attack James and Maria. On the New Year's Day SmackDown, James defeated Phoenix after interference from McCool backfired and Lay Cool attacked James until Phoenix made the save, though she would take out James herself. On the 1-8 SmackDown, Lay Cool apologized to Phoenix for what happened last week as they showed off a trough of lettuce they had for James, though Phoenix blew them off. Phoenix would defeat Layla in a match, and Lay Cool attacked her until James made the save, though she would lay Phoenix out as revenge for last week. On the 115 SmackDown, James defeated Phoenix by DQ, and Lay Cool attacked James after the match, while Phoenix just walked away. The following week on 122, uh, Lay Cool held a going-away party for James as they showed off a few cakes shaped like pigs. And James and Maria interrupted as James said she was a real woman and would teach McCool respect at the Rumble. The four women brawled as Phoenix came out and helped Lay Cool as McCool would shove a cake in James' face and dumped a bowl of punch on her. On the 129 SmackDown, McCool cut a promo saying James was gone from SmackDown and issued an open challenge and Layla would come out dressed as Piggy James and McCool would defeat her in a mock squash. Amen. All right. I mean, this was definitely like <laughs> definitely drew a lot of ire at the time uh, for the fat shaming, the piggy James. And I think it was because a little bit too, you just always assume it's Vince being um, just vindictive and an asshole. And I'm sure they looked at Mickey as not being as thin as, you know, some of the other women and, and call them that when she's really like an amazing shape. It looks fantastic. Uh, typical, you know, and then you got King involved. It just does not make things any better. He, you know, lives for the shit. So he just piles on, but here we go. Mickey's charging hard for the gold, looking to end the reign of the bully and lay cool. The story's spent a lot. Um, it's too much mean girls, too much King. Michelle grabs the mic, says Mickey's nowhere to be seen. She gets more fat jokes in. Michelle assumes she's going to win by forfeit. Out comes Layla, dressed as Piggy James again. We get all the stupid forced chuckles from Stryker and King, just brutal, fat-shaming bullshit. Mickey finally arrives to a pop. She charges to the ring. Mickey crushes Layla with a Fez press on the floor, throws her to the barricade, dodges a kick, and wipes out Layla again. She comes in, hits the DDT on Michelle, and wins the belt in a squash. Mickey stacks Layla on top of uh, Michelle, and then all the divas come out with a cake, and they smash it on Lay Cool. So I will say this, despite the build in the story, I thought the squash was perfect. It was well done. It was a nice moment for Mickey, even though the fat stuff was way too much. Um, like, I think they at least paid it off with Mickey destroying the bullies and winning the belt. So a credit there. Um, I will say, though, Grimes, this feels like it takes away from the in-ring strides they've been making. You know, we've been chronicling over the last year and a half the slow, steady progress the women's division has made in 08, 09, and into 10. And it just feels like this is regressive after what we've seen. So I gave it a star because I just like that they actually had Mickey Destroyer, but not a fan of the overall story. And again, regression in the division. Yeah, I agree. I also gave it a star. I will say, I mean, at least it was a storyline. I, I mean, name another storyline over the last three years for the Divas. I can't really think of one. Like an actual, like you say, you look back and you say, oh, remember the Lay Cool Mickey James feud? People say, yeah, the Piggy James feud. I'm not saying right. it's for the best, but it's it was an actual storyline rather than they're just going out there and wrestling. So I think I maybe honestly in their think, mind, I honestly think King made it worse. Like I, I think when he's involved, it just amps up the bullshit with the laughing and he just he just goes yeah. so in on this stuff. I really think if he um didn't wasn't the announcer for this and they just had you know someone more straightforward. It wouldn't have been, it might not have been as bad. 
Yeah, I give them, like I give them tre- credit for trying something, you know, trying to actually incorporate a storyline into the matches. So maybe their mindset was let's sacrifice some of the in-ring progress we've made, but to actually have a storyline that people can kind of follow and get behind. And I mean, the payoff is good. You know, the good prevails over evil and, you know, the bullies kind of get their comeuppance. So that's fine. Um, it gave us a title change on a major show. Uh, we had three consecutive retentions up to this point. So there's that, you know, you want a little bit of of excitement with a, you know, a possible title change. So I'm not saying it was completely meaningless. I'll give it a one just because I, I, I guess I see what they were trying to do. I wanted to give this a dud because I was just tired of the whole fucking thing, but I gave it a half star for the title change, but I'm just done. I'm done with the whole thing. It's garbage. It's fucking garbage. It's Vince being a dick. Uh, I don't understand how anybody approved this. I'm, uh, nobody could be that scared of him to, to turn this down and, I, I, if I was Mickey James, I'd have just turned it down and quit <laughs> to be honest with you. Cause this, which I guess she does eventually to a certain extent. Uh, I just hated it. I hated everything about it and I'm glad it's over. I'm going to save my words for better matches ahead. <laughs> it's just crap. All right. We get a video package for our next match. It's the final match in the end of card for the world title. Ray Mysterio taking on the undertaker. Scott, very cool match on paper here. Very unique and different. How did it happen? Uh, I agree, 100%. On the 12-14 Raw, Batista would interrupt Maria's slammy acceptance speech, and, and he said he was screwed the night before and should be world champion until security escorted him out. On the 12-18 SmackDown, Batista confronted GM Teddy Long about what happened at TLC until Mysterio interrupted, and Long made a match between the two with the winner earning a title shot the next week, and Mysterio would defeat Batista to earn the title shot. On Christmas Day, Taker and Mysterio wrestled to a no contest, when Batista got involved, and Mysterio would be the last one standing by giving Batista the 619. On New Year's Day, Long announced a beat the clock challenge. We love those. To determine who would challenge Taker here uh, at the Rumble, uh, CM Punk would set the time by defeating Matt Hardy in 720. Kane and Dolph Ziegler would go to the time limit, then Mysterio would defeat Chris Jericho at 719. And in the main event, Batista and R Truth went to the time limit when Mysterio got involved. Vicky Guerrero would come out and declare that since Mysterio cost Batista the match, they would have a match again next week. How SmackDown-ish to determine the number one contender. And that following week on 1-8, Batista cut a promo saying he was still being screwed until Mysterio came out and they would go back and forth. And in the main event, Mysterio and Batista wrestled to another no contest when it was implied Taker attacked both men during the match. On 1-15, uh, Taker cut a promo. Uh saying that his dominance would continue into the new decade. And in the main event, Mysterio defeated Batista in a steel cage. I remember that bit match being pretty good, actually, to determine uh, the number one contender. On 122, Mysterio cut a promo talking about winning the world title four years ago. And he said he wasn't afraid of Taker, and Taker would come out and say he admired Mysterio's courage, but he was digging his own grave only for Batista to attack Mysterio, and then he escaped through the crowd. And finally, on the 129 SmackDown, Mysterio wrestled Shawn Michaels. Uh, to a no contest when Batista attacked both men until Triple H made the save. And then Taker would appear and give Mysterio and Michaels a double choke slam. Hmm, more about him in a moment. A lot, lot going on into this match for sure. Um, yeah. What do you think? Mysterio overcomes his enemy, snags this huge title match uh, like you talked about. Nice pop for Ray. Not always a given during this time with him, so but he does get one here. Taker's good usual intense entrance, wild pop. 
We start with circling around. Taker quickly dumps Ray hard to the floor with a choke throw. Ray tries to come firing back, but Taker slugs him back out on a springboard. Taker keeps unloading. It's a heavy guillotine leg drop on the apron. Ray counters a choke slam with a rana. Taker blocks a 619, loads a tombstone, but Ray slips free, kicks Taker hard in the head. Ray uses his speed to dodge, springboards right into a big boot, settles back, takes the leg out, and then targets it with a quick strike. Ray counters a powerbomb on the floor, barrels into the champ with an acai moonsault. Taker's nose is bleeding, but he dodges the baseball slide and viciously shoves Ray into the barricade. Taker batters Ray back in the ring, focusing on the arm, chucking Ray around as King is shocked to see Taker bleeding. He's acting like Taker's ever bled before, but... Clearly, he's blood like a fucking pig (laughs) through most of his biker run. Uh, Ray keeps trying to kick his way back into things, but Taker slugs down hard. Ray heats back up, flies through a flurry, but he can't finish. Taker recovers. Ray slips out of the last ride. It's a 619 and a springboard dropkick. It's another 619, but Taker blocks the West Coast pop, hits the last ride, and Ray is cooked. Uh, Scott, this is a super fun match. It was a great story and crowd. Taker is a monster, but Ray took him to the limit, put him in peril. Uh, this put over Ray as a contender before finishing him off. The finish was sharp, too, with Ray just emptying the tank until Taker used his size to finally overpower. Uh, Taker heads to Mania. Ray comes up short. We'll see where he heads next. I went three and three quarters. I think this is a little bit of a hidden gem. I agree. Uh, I gave this three and a half. Uh, it is a robust. Uh, this match was like 12 minutes. 1109. Yeah. 1109. Yeah. Uh, this was fun. Uh, two bona fide hall of famers, of course. And now they are, um, I enjoyed the mismatch of, uh, of size. I think it's something you don't, I mean, it happens to Ray all the time, but, uh, not something you see out of taker often. Um, so I was curious as to uh, how he, uh, uh, you know, how he was going to handle it because this is not a common a common thing for Taker to wrestle a guy smaller than him. But it was it was uh, fun to watch. I think Taker had a good time. Number one, I think he respects Ray and he knows he'll get a good match out of him. And secondly, I think Taker enjoyed wrestling somebody smaller than him so he could kind of really show off the size and chuck him around and everything. But Ray Ray had his kind of upsetty moments where, you know, the possibility was there. So they did find a way to kind of fit those in the match. I think deep down we knew Taker was going to win. But uh, but I do think that, uh, I do think that uh, uh, Ray did give uh, Taker a pretty damn good match. They made it, like, very legit and... Uh, and a better match than Sheamus and Orton, I'll be honest. Um, I like the, the 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 thing. The size difference, Grimes, really made it for me because, again, with Ray, he's always you know the size disadvantage. But Taker never gets this, and I think it added to kind of the intrigue of the match. Even if you knew Taker was going to win, I think it added something different than seeing like Batista and like the usual guys that that Taker always faces. It was a great big man, little man match. And they, mm-hmm. they mentioned on commentary, you know, that, you know, Takers wrestled Shawn Michaels and smaller guys, but that's different. Ray's even smaller. <laughs> Ray makes those guys look like giants. You know, this was very different for Taker. Sure, he's wrestled mm-hmm. Michaels and Jericho and those guys, but th- they wrestle a different style than Ray. This was, you know, an all-out sprint. That's what every match is going to be against Ray. And that was great for Undertaker. And, I mean, 
Ray took an absolute beating in this match. Um, you know, when Taker tossed him over the rope by his throat and just, I mean, Taker really threw him around and Ray really bumped for him. And I think that's a lot of that, like you mentioned, Scott, is probably the respect they had for each other. Like, mm -hmm. hey, we're really going to go out there and Ray's going to trust that Taker can throw him around, but not in a way that, you know, could potentially really, you know, hurt him. And I think that was great. I love the the sequence there when Ray countered the choke slam and went for the six one nine and Taker caught him into the tombstone and Ray wiggled out of that. Like that's just great stuff there. Um, and then a great ending with one of the best last rides of all time. I mean, he he held Ray up there for a while, um, you know, with a wedgie on that last ride. And this was a time you didn't see the last ride as frequently. Also, so I thought it was cool that he mm -hmm. he pulled that out for this match, you know, because we hadn't seen that in a while. He had already kind of gone to the, you know, the Hell's Gate and the kind of the, you know, the slower stuff. So it was great to see a last ride again. And yeah, I I, I, I also think this is a hidden gem. It's a great match. I also went three and three quarters. All right, Kane uh, finds Shawn Michaels backstage. He says his obsession with his brother is unhealthy. He hypes up his own Royal Rumble stats and being the only man to face Taker twice at WrestleMania. Says whatever obsession is driving Sean is only darkness at the end. Very chilling. Uh, Triple H comes in. He tries to give Hunt, uh, tries to give Sean, uh, you know, some pep talk. Wishes him luck. Sean apologizes for last week. Says he was selfish. He hopes the best man wins tonight and hopes to see Hunter at the end. Triple H agrees, but Sean warns him that him and Undertaker is meant to be. And Triple H says, "Yes, I agree. That's why I know you'll find another way." So there you go. Uh, we get our Rumble by the Numbers video, which is always really well done. It's going to set up our Rumble match. Scott, any uh, notes here that we want to get into before the actual Rumble match? Besides stats about the match. Yeah, we, I'll uh, I'll skip those because we would be giving stuff away. I'll do those at the end. So a couple of debuts uh, and farewells. Uh, now, Fumi Yamamoto uh, took up boxing and jujitsu before joining the New Japan Dojo in 2001. And he would train to be a wrestler and worked his way up the ranks in New Japan before joining WWE in 2007. He would compete in FCW as Mr. Yamamoto before taking the name Yoshitatsu. And he would make his main roster debut in the summer of 2009 on ECW. And his pay-per-view debut is here. Since we last saw him on pay-per-view, Zack Ryder would overhaul his character as he cut his hair, got new tights, and dubbed himself the Long Island Ice-Z. As he portrayed a Guido from Long Island in the vein of your favorite people on the planet, Mr. Rosero. The Jersey Shore crew. He is the situation. And uh, what's his name? Vinny. Right? Was Vinny the... Is Vinny the DJ? Rhode Island DJ? I can't even with you. It's oh, Paulie come D. on. That's Pauly D, man. Awful. They all look the same. Whatever. Bunch of dumb guinea fucks. Uh, anyway. Uh, and he would receive a push on ECW and even retired Tommy Dreamer on the 1229 ECW. This is Carlito's final WWE pay-per-view as he would continue to work the mid-card and briefly reunited with Primo before being released in May after a wellness violation. And he refused to enter rehab. He would work the indie scene and also return to Puerto Rico where he would spend the next decade. And he would win numerous titles in Puerto Rico while also working overseas. He would make an appearance of WWE in 2014 when he, Primo, and Epico inducted their father, Carlos Colon, into the Hall of Fame. And he would also appear in the 2021 Royal Rumble as it was rumored he had signed an agent deal well, that was false. He then would make an appearance earlier this year at Backlash in Puerto Rico, helping the LWO against the Judgment Day. And it was announced he had re-signed with the company. However, we have not seen him on uh, camera since. Uh, with this appearance, uh, Beth Phoenix becomes the second woman to enter the Royal Rumble. Of course, the first one was China. 
back in 1999. Uh, we have a surprise. We'll talk about that when it happens. On the 1127 SmackDown, uh, CM Punk would bring out the former Festus. Biscuits and gravy, whose real name was real to be Luke Gallows. And Punk revealed that the condition Gallows had was the result of alcohol and drug use, as Punk said he had saved Gallows and can save others. Over the weeks, Punk and Gallows would bring fans into the ring and shave their heads bald as Punk hyped up his straight-edge society. And on the 122 SmackDown, they were interrupted by a woman named Serena, and they would shave her head as well, and he brought her into the group. On the 1214 Raw, Michaels, Shawn Michaels, Accepted the Slammy for match of the year as he declared he can beat Taker. He was about to walk away from the, remember the good moment, typical great Sean moment. Walked away from the podium, declared he could beat, turn around and say he could beat Taker. I could beat you. Give me one more chance at WrestleMania 26. And that, that night DX was informed they would have to appear in little people's court the next week. That same night, Jericho defeated DX by DQ and DX said that Jericho was now off raw as members of the roster carried him out of the arena. On the 1218 SmackDown, Jericho cut a promo saying he would only leave Raw when he wanted to and said it was unfair to be split up from show. Uh, split up from show. Uh, on the 1221 Raw, we saw footage uh, from earlier in the day of DX and Little People's Court as they ruled in favor of Hornswoggle. Later that night, show came down to the ring with Santa Claus and wished for Jericho to be back on Raw. Santa, not Xanta would reveal himself to be Jericho until they were cleared from the ring by DX. DX would offer Hornswoggle a spot as their mascot, and the three men celebrated. On the 1228 Raw, uh, Jericho was given a ringside ticket from show, and he would watch DX defeat show and Chavo Guerrero, and Triple H would challenge Jericho to a title match the next week in order to keep Jericho off Raw for good. On the 1-4 Raw, DX would defeat Jericho to retain the titles and force Jericho off of Raw. Uh, on the 111 Raw, DX met with guest host Mike Tyson as Michaels wanted to bury the hatchet with him. But Jericho would come out and announce DX would face him and Tyson. In a, I thought that was kind of cool, actually. And Tyson in a tag match with Jericho getting full reign to be on Raw if his team won. Michaels would then issue another challenge to Taker as he demanded he face him next week. And in the main event, DX would defeat Tyson and Jericho when Tyson turned on Jericho and revealed to be in DX again. Oh, what a tangled web we weave just 11 years later. Uh, on the 118 Raw, Tiger uh, Taker confronted Michaels as he said he had nothing to prove to him and declined Michaels' challenge. And Michaels said he would enter the Rumble match and win so he could defeat Taker at WrestleMania to end the streak and become world heavyweight champion. At the end of the night, DX and Cena had a back and forth about being in the Rumble with DX clearing Cena from the ring, though Triple H would then throw Michaels over the top to the floor. So obviously with it being the Royal Rumble, we have mm -hmm. a lot of intertwining storylines going on here as we head into this match. Dolph Ziggler is our number one draw this year. He heads out. Good choice to showcase him uh, to start. Evan Bourne, number two. I like this high-energy kickoff. They have a quick uh, pace back and forth, capped by an air. Bourne, Punk is out at number three, flanked by Serena. He withstands a quick flurry, throws out Bourne and Ziggler to a pop. Punk gets a, the mic from Serena, starts to preach to the fans about his historic night. JTG is in at number four. He was the Crime Time Coin Toss winner. He gets a little bit of offense, but Punk quickly throws him out. Goes back to preaching. Striker talks about young punks doing, going to discotheques to listen to new hip music and do drugs. Great Khali's in at number five. He's out with Singh, and Punk tries to rationalize him with a rationalize with him right away. Says he can save him, but Khali chops him down and hooks a head vice. Beth Phoenix is in at number six. She comes down as Cole says she's only the second woman to ever enter the Rumble. They stare down, and then Khali scoops her up. 
But Beth kisses him. And as she's making out with him, pulls him over the top and eliminates him in a pretty classic spot. Beth takes a few shots at Punk, but he stops her to go to sleep and throws her out. Zack Ryder's in at number seven. Punk offers him a spot in the Straight Edge Society and then slugs him down and throws him out. Punk rants on the mic some more until Triple H is in at number eight. They have a hard-hitting back and forth until Drew McIntyre is in at number nine. Hunter fends off Punk and throws him out uh, after a counter to the GTS to end his great run through the first third of the Rumble. Ted DiBiase is in at number 10. Hunter cuts through him and Drew. Grimes, any thoughts on this uh, first 10 segment here of the Rumble? Yeah, I mean, I think the CM Punk, the CM Punk stuff was great. Um, I really think it, you know, continuing to help establish him as the most kind of hated heel in the company. He's starting to creep up to that status, especially, you know, when he hit the GTS on Beth. As much as people want to cheer Punk, you know, you could hear people audibly boo when he hit the GTS on her. And, you know, I, I think it's the most interesting and intricate gimmick they have at the time. So I thought it was a really smart choice for them to really spotlight him in the Rumble. Um also a good way to get rid of some of those jobbers early on. Um, you know, I, I wish it had gone a little bit longer, to be honest with you. And I think there's some guys later on in the match mm-hmm. that you could have had come out uh, and yep. also get tossed by Punk before you had Triple H come out. But, you know, I get it. Um, I don't know. What's cool about the Rumble, you know, I think for us, right, for diehards like us, is that you start kind of sizing up that potential card for Mania. And, you know, when right. Triple H eliminated Punk, it made me go, hmm. Right. right for a second like what a fresh interesting matchup that would be you know triple h not really kind of directionless at this mm-hmm. point right when it comes to mania so you start to think are they planning a seed there which would have been interesting but you know we'll obviously see what way they go but yeah i think the punk stuff was was a terrific way for the first third wish it lasted longer but it kept me intrigued i love uh this punk spot you know he starts growing the i mean i love it he he dumped into the role he let his hair grow he let his beard grow he's kind of looking like jesus uh, so it was, it was, I enjoyed it a lot and you're right about triple H, you, you know, he's kind of just floating around there. It's, you know, he's bouncing around from here to there. He's kind of, you know, attached to Sean. Cause that's what they do. Um, I love the Sean gimmick of, of like being obsessed with that rematch. Uh, cause he felt he was, you know, one, one move off in Houston, you know, um, they're trying to push Drew McIntyre, but I mean, we'll talk more about him, JR in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just trying, you know. Um, but for me, Punk was about it was about Punk in the beginning. I mean, he's this is a great gimmick for him. Uh, he, it's captivating him. It's keeping him interesting while not being in a title picture at the moment. So I, 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 I loved. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed Punk before this anyway. But I really, this is when I really got in my Punk mode. Uh, because this gimmick was really good. It fit him because this is how he is. And having like a, you know, the muscle and then the, the women's. I'd say it's the best they've ever done, like a cult gimmick. I I mean, I know the why it's early days maybe, but um, I think it's the most effective they ever did with like a cult leader, um, not presented as fully as a cult, but pretty much being a cult. So I think, I think they did a good job with it. I agree hundred percent. Yeah. It it wasn't very, it wasn't very heavy handed. It was just punk being really good you know, without dealing with a lot of other, you know, gimmicky things. It was just these mm-hmm. three people. It wasn't, you know, the lights and all that kind of stuff. So, but that's what I gained out of the beginning. I thought the crowd was, yeah. was pretty good. And um, then we were getting a little fluff in the middle, but, but I had no problem with the beginning. 
All right, John Morrison's in at 11. He's flying around, showing off a little bit. Hunter catches a breather. Hits Starship paint on Drew, but he can't take advantage. Kane is in at number 12 for his 12th appearance in the Rumble. Kane cleans house on everyone who comes near him, but he can't get anyone out. Cody Rhodes is in at 13. He helps DiBiase against Kane. They start to work together. Nothing much is happening as MVP comes out at 14. Miz jumps him in the aisle, lays him out. MVP gets carried to the back as Legacy almost dumps Hunter, but Kane saves. Carlito is in at 15. The star power has thinned. Again, like Grimes, you noticed, maybe kind of took Punk out too soon. Carlito gets some offense in on everyone, mixing in some backstabbers. Miz is at 16, but MVP comes out. He goes right at Miz. He clotheslines him with a kind of a Cactus Jack clothesline, and both guys are eliminated. Matt Hardy's in at 17. He runs through some guys till Kane knocks him out quickly, but then Hunter throws Kane out as well. Hunter heats up, runs through everyone to a pop until Drew takes his knee out. Sean gets a huge pop at 18. He comes in hot, dumping Carlito, Cody, Ted, and Morrison. Sean and Hunter team up and toss Drew, then stare down until Cena is in at number 19 to a big pop. Really good booking there. Cena cuts down both guys, but they overwhelm him. Hunter hits a pedigree, but Sean eliminates Hunter with sweet chin music in a very well-done spot, Scott. Shelton Benjamin's in at 20. Any thoughts on that second segment of 10? Uh, decent run. Uh, like I said, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, and this is the case with every rumble, uh, 11 through 20 is usually where there's a lot of fluff. And I feel like you did see some, uh, there is a bit of, um, uh, how do I put it? There's a decent amount of exposing again, that the roster is a little thin. Now that may change when they start enveloping the Christians and all them back into the two main rosters when they change up ECW, which again, we'll get more into in a couple weeks. Uh, but for the most part, I was, I mean, it was fine. I mean, it was a good back and forth. Sean's in, we're getting some action. Um, crowds is uh, engaged because really this is a rumble Grimes that uh, doesn't really have a clear winner. Usually, you know, this isn't like 98 with Steve or, you know, I don't know, 02 or Triple H, the last time they were in this building. You know, there was not a clear winner because you almost feel like both champions are not, because both champions are not probably set in stone. A, because I can't see Sheamus holding the WWE title all the way to Mania. And B, because you're not, unless Taker wins the title, keeps the title at Mania, which that doesn't seem his cup of tea. So probably the one thing that, that is enjoyable about this rumble is there is a a uh, feeling of um, intrigue, which some years is missing from a rumble match. Well, and the story is real good with Sean. I mean, it's like right. a, it's a well done story that you want to see play out. So exactly, yep. I mean, it could be Taker and Sean for the world title. Why not? You know, you add something to it. Now, does that would that have given it away? We'll get more into that as we go down the line. Uh, what have you thought so far, Grams? Yeah, I think that's probably where I, I think at the time most people thought it was going, right? Sean was going to, you know, finally win the match here and get the rematch with Taker, and that would be that. And then, you know, the title picture on the other side, who knew what was going on? I mean, you know, you weren't going to do Cena Sheamus again. You know, Sheamus just fought Orton. So, you know, you kind of not really anyone to step into that spot to face Sheamus, you know, that right. baby face spot. They tried with Kofi and that failed. You know, they, they haven't really built up a credible baby face challenger outside of Cena for Mania. So yeah, there's definitely intrigue there. Um, you know, they did the whole sort of rumble retribution trope that they do sometimes uh, with, with Miz and, and MVP in this one, right. They did it with Foley and Orton. 
um, in 04, and Booker T and Kane had the one where it kind of leads to a Mania match, which I thought was interesting that they chose Miz MVP for that because it seemed like that was a nowhere feud. Mm-hmm. Um, so it didn't really need to shine there. Like, And Miz is already kind of mixed in with Big Show and Jericho and just kind of seemed like there was didn't really make sense for them to do that there. But again, you have to build some sort of intrigue into that 11 to 20 spot, I guess, and like something that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of did right. that spot there. I thought the mini triple threat, you know, with Cena and DX out there was cool, you know, given the history, obviously, of of all of those three. So I thought that was good. And then the, you know, the elimination, the Triple H elimination playing off of Triple H throwing Sean out, you know, previously on Raw or whatever. So and just kind of playing into, you know, Sean will literally do anything to get this rematch with Undertaker, you know, kick his best friend in the face and, you know, he'll do whatever he, he can. So I thought that added to that as well i think at that point you're really thinking all right sean's gonna win this thing because he is you know he is on a one-track mind towards towards taker and there's nothing that's gonna stop him all right john cena throws out shelton as yoshitatsu's in at 21 has his shine peppering away at sean and cena for a minute but then cena throws him out big shows in at 22 he shows off his strength right away cena almost dumps sean out but he hangs on mark henry's in at 23 Henry and Show stare down. They throw some shots until Henry and Cena work together to rattle them until Henry slams them in a really cool spot. Chris Masters is in at 24. He throws some guys around as we edge along. Show blocks a master lock. He throws Masters out easily. Truth runs in at 25. He throws out Henry and Show in a pretty wild moment. Truth fights off Cena and Michaels as Jack Swagger comes in at 26. He takes advantage of everyone being gassed. He almost throws out Sean. Kofi's in at 27. His striker reminds us it's the most successful slide in history. Kofi Kingston here. Leverages Swagger out and then yanks out Truth as well. Chris Jericho is in at 28. Walks right into an attitude adjustment as Sean heats back up as well. Cena dumps Kofi to booze. Jericho cracks Cena with a code breaker. Huge pop at 29 as Edge makes a surprise return after what? the injury over the summer. He goes right at Chris Jericho. Cuts through him. Michaels and Cena with Spears. Edge throws out Jericho right away. Keeps fighting off Cena and Michaels. And in comes Batista at 30. Batista cleans house. We're right into our final four as we get a long battle with the four of them. Sean takes control of the match, does what he can to meet his goal until Edge almost throws him out, but they both land on the apron. Sean knocks Edge back inside with sweet chin music, but Batista leaps over and knocks Sean to the floor to kill his dream. Sean is laying in shock as the crowd is booing. Sean snaps. He tries to get back in the ring and begs. He hits sweet chin music on Charles Robinson, then crumbles to the mat and leaves in shock. Batista charges Cena, but Cena ducks and Batista flies out. Cole calls back to 2005, but then Edge quickly dumps his old rival and wins the 2010 Royal Rumble, which is a fine one. I will say, though, after the punk red hot start, uh, it really kind of middled from there to the end. It wasn't anything too great. Uh, The lack of depth and star power to me was glaring through most of this. They really took out punk too early, then backloaded the final four. It was still very light, even, even with that. Uh, beyond that, though, there was a couple of neat spots. The only true story was Sean's quest uh, through the match. Edge's return was well done. A huge shock. Really set up Sean marching to Mania in a fun way to get the taker. Solid rumble, but not in the top tier. Grimes, uh, a well-built back end, but that's about it. I went uh, four stars. Besides Punk in the Final Four, there's not much going on. Mm. And Sean. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I actually thought this, this last third was really boring until Edge came out. Um, mm-hmm. there's some things that didn't make sense to me. You're meaning to tell me you couldn't have extended Punk and had him throw out Yoshitatsu and Chris Masters and Carlito? Yeah, exactly. Like earlier in the match mm-hmm. and extended that a little bit just to, yep. to have more excitement in that in that middle piece there. There's no point. Also, 
please explain to me why R Truth eliminated Big Show and Mark Henry. <laughs> like that's a spot that you would think would would really you know someone that's really going to benefit from that, and someone that you I understand that they were kind of pushing Truth a little bit, but yeah, like, he had just came back. You know, yeah, I, 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 well, I, I kind of get it. Seems like an interesting choice. I, I you yeah. know, and then you know having Jericho and and Big Show not interact at all in the match didn't make sense to me given the backstage segment that we saw earlier and everything that was going on with them and they didn't even interact with each other in the match the show was out before Jericho even entered and Jericho was kind of out like that I would have liked to have seen Jericho maybe do a little bit more he had the feud with DX so him and Sean were kind of actively feuding he had the the feud with Edge obviously which we saw play out here but he also has the history with Big Show I, I thought Jericho could have been utilized a little bit better especially given the run he's been on you know the past year and a half or so. Um, but it was, I mean, once it got to the final four, I mean, this is a terrific final four, you know, four bona fide hall of famers, you know, four WrestleMania main eventers. So excellent final four. Um, definitely the, you know, the air was kind of taken out of the building a little bit when Sean gets eliminated, but then it builds that intrigue of like, you know, is Edge going to do it or are they going to go chalk here and have Cena win? Cause he's, you know, he's super Cena. So still a little bit of intrigue there. And then, you know, they made the right call obviously at the end and, and gave it to, you know, the goat edge, the, you know, I mean, you know, the man that really has done everything. This was kind of the, the feather in his cap of the last thing he hadn't done at this point. He won money in the bank, he won King of the ring. And so for him to finally come back and get that rumble win, I thought it was great. It builds intrigue into mania because now you have edge winning the rumble and undertaker and Sheamus are your champions. So you're thinking, is it going to be, they're not going to do edge taker again. Right. So is it going to be edge Sheamus? That doesn't really seem to make sense. Is edge face is he heel. So, you know, you leave the show definitely interested to see how the road to WrestleMania shapes up, I think. And um, it's a good, it's a good rumble. I, you know, it's not one of the worst. It's certainly not the top tier for me. So I gave it three and a half. Um, I think it's middle of the pack rumble. So I don't know. What about you, Scott? Yeah. I mean, the middle, the middle 10, I would love to see punk, I, I obviously they thought that putting punk in the beginning would have been easier for the mic work, but having him stick around in the middle would have kind of helped bridge the gap of some of these, you know, kind of bums in the middle. Um, and I'll get more into this obviously when we get to uh, WrestleMania, but this match proves how vital Shawn Michaels what has been in these eight years since he came back in 2002, because I mean, you could tell everybody was just totally thinking that Sean was going to win this and just telling the story and believing it and sucking you in. And then when it doesn't happen, it's almost like he's taking in your emotions, your distress, if you will, that he didn't win the match. Uh, that's just, that's just being as th that great. That's being a hall of famer and uh, the edge comeback. I almost feel like, I mean, Edge deserved to win, you know, typical formula. Guy comes back from injury, main event status. Uh, but I feel like his his winning kind of got overshadowed by the whole Sean drama because that's really what people were remembering is him just losing his shit. Like, he's just got these, these like, empty eyes uh, because he didn't win. This is his only chance and until a month, you know, the next show. It's just good storytelling. And I think it kept people captivated for what was probably a very boring middle 20 minutes uh, of the show when all the other, you know, stiffs came in. Um, overall, I enjoyed it, but uh, let's see, what did I give it? Four and a quarter, uh, which is pretty good. I mean, it might be kind of high, but it was an entertaining rumble. Crowd was in it. 
And the Sean stuff kept me captivated. Even if the middle part of the match was a little, you know, milk toasty. I thought that I thought the Sean drama kept me in, hooked me in. Edge winning was great, but I feel like it got a little stunted by the other side of it of Sean not winning. All right, let's get to our awards and wrap things up. Uh, I think MVP of the night to me was pretty clear. I mean, it's CM Punk. When you think of this night, when you think of this show, you think of him dominating the first part of that rumble. Totally. I, I agree. Also, I'm with Punk. Yep. All right, LVP. I just I want Piggy James. I put it as like oh. it's not Mickey, but it's the angle. It's Layla dressed as her. Just the whole stupid bullshit. Garbage, fucking garbage. Yeah, I I could go with that. I didn't really. I I originally went with Matt Hardy because he was in the Rumble, but I forgot. Um, but I, I'm gonna go. I'm actually gonna go with Jericho. Not his fault, but I think just the booking in the Rumble match. I would have liked to have seen him do a lot more. Okay. All right. Uh, best match. I I went with the Rumble match. Yeah. Yeah, not much pickings here. Yeah, I went with Taker Ray slightly over the Rumble. Uh, worst match, I think we probably all agree, uh, is the women's match. Yep. Yep, so women's match and honorable mention, Seamus Orton. Yeah. That yeah, that was, I mean, you could argue maybe it's worse just because of what it meant, but I, I think the Piggy James stuff is just No, that stuff is just, that's just disgusting. Uh, best moment and surprise of the night. I, I I had both the same. It's Edge returning. Yep. Yeah. Oh, totally. Okay. Final grade. I gotta say, I I really was kind of disappointed with the show. I, I thought it was one that was kind of held a little bit better, like overall. Um, like historically, you think of Edge coming back, you think of the Punk thing, Sean. Like when you, the memories are sharp of the show. It's like, oh wow, that's a loaded Rumble. And then you watch it, it's like that's really it. <laughs> There's nothing else. Right. Um, so I ended up going six out of ten. I, I mean, it's like a middle of the road rumble match and not the best on the card to carry it. Taker Ray is good, very good. But beyond that, there's really nothing else to get super excited about on the show. Yeah, I mean, I have two matches that were under two. So that uh well, no, I had one match under two. Uh I had it under Easy one actually. Me. It's pretty low. I'm looking more at the, the next show actually might be worse, but um yeah this this is a hard one i'm gonna it hovered around five but i mean i've seen better shows that are 50 percent. i'm gonna give this a four and a half out of one yeah i was the undercard is just not good and the rumble did the best it could but i mean that undercard is just it's not good it's very blah very uninspiring um had some highlights but not not great so uh, I, I I couldn't even get it to fifty percent, four and a half. Yeah, I went I went five and a half. Um, I think you know, Edge winning you know brings it up for me. You know, Edge is to this Scott as Triple H is to the other Scott. Um, so <laughs> Edge is my guy. So that that yeah probably brought it up a little bit, but yeah, I mean. If I never see these matches again, besides Taker Ray and the Rumble, I'm fine with that, right? And that's not really what you want for an undercard at a big four show. So, yeah, you know, I agree. The undercard is, is very, very weak. Ray Taker saves the undercard, and the, the intrigue of the Rumble match, maybe even more than the match itself, um, saves it a little bit. So, five and a half. All right, that'll do it for us. Uh, Scott will be back in two weeks' time with Elimination mm -hmm. Chamber 2010. So, looking forward to that, of course. Uh, Mr. Grimes, I want to thank you for joining us. It was great to have you here, uh, the first-timer. 
appreciate it. Uh, sure, check out everything on the PlayStation Wrestling feed, PlayStation Pop Experience, and the North South Connection, where we have audio and video. You can find us on YouTube there. Check us out on all social media. So that everyone take care. And